Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161BY1139, Law and Disorder, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 249, September the 9th, 1991. This evening, Otto Scott and I have with us Douglas Murray. Now, Douglas is a very, very important part of everything here, so I feel all of you are privileged to hear what he has to say tonight on our subject, because he has a, a very extensive background in the area of law. Our subject is law and disorder. Now that's not the usual term. The common term is law and order. But there are many perspectives that we can bring to this title, Law and Disorder. And one perspective that I'd like to begin with is this, that one of our problems in the modern world is that law is the occasion of a great deal of disorder. As much trouble is called by, caused by bad laws as by bad men, if not more. Bad laws affect everyone. And a bad law passed by the state, the county, or the federal government affects everyone so that bad laws cause more disorder than bad men do. And as nations and men have left God's law, they have been creating disorder by means of what they do. On today's news, for example, there was an account of a trial held. It involved a young man whose criminal negligence had led to the death of one young person and the permanent disability reducing another to a vegetable. The courtroom, we were told by the news media, was divided between two groups. On one side, those for justice, and on the other side, those for mercy, as though the two were in conflict and of necessity were opposites. The simple fact was that uh, a sizable percentage of the community felt Two lives have been destroyed. Why destroy a third life, that of the guilty young man? The court apparently agreed. He was given seven months in a juvenile detention home. And this is the kind of thing that is commonplace. We are schooled to thinking that if we are for justice, then we are unmerciful, unkind, 
and that in fact there is something criminal about the insistence on justice as against what is called mercy. But Solomon was right here when he said the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel and we live in cruel times. Cruel times that see themselves as merciful. Well, Otto, would you like to make some general statements and then Douglas can do the same. Well, <clears throat> thank you, Rush. I think that is a very accurate opening note. I've just been reading some of the details of a crime bill which has been put together is being put together in the United States Senate. Of course, Congress is federal. The crime bill, in contrast to what you were saying, we're moving from one end of the spectrum to the other at the same time. We have these ridiculously small sentences. We also have some incredibly long sentences where for relatively trivial crimes, individuals are being put away effectively for life. Yes. So we've lost consistency, and we're losing coherence. The Senate crime bill is going to have over 50 crimes, 50 capital crimes, calling for the death penalty. I have not been able to get a complete list of which crimes they're talking about, one of them, however, wants to make a federal uh, crime, Senator D'Amato, wants to make a federal case out of the use of any crime, use of a gun in any crime, which means that roughly 11,000 crimes committed annually over the United States will wind up in federal court because a gun is used. And the argument is that the gun was obtained through interstate commerce. Now, that will clog the federal courts to the choking up point. As it is, criminal cases in federal courts take precedence over civil cases, and that's one of the reasons why civil cases are backed up. Another instance of using the death penalty in this proposed crime bill would be to kill a federal chicken inspector. <laughs> and inherent in the bill would be to sweep away the laws of 15 states that have ruled that there is to be no capital crime within their borders. So what we're talking about here is an enormous constitutional extension or expansion of federal authority. It doesn't take any Sigmund Freud to figure out that if a bill of this sort is enacted by both houses and approved by the president, and the president is apparently behind it, yes. is that it will require a federal police force to apply. We've never had a federal police force as such. We've had the Federal Bureau of Investigation, which presumably looks into matters of interstate crime, but... They're primarily investigative. We're talking now about police and the application of capital crime. 
And so we have here a very weird situation. We have already seen the constitutional guarantees against unreasonable search and seizures swept aside under the guise of going after the drug people in which property is seized before an arrest is made without a charge being filed, without a trial, and without conviction, and yet the property so seized is not returned. Yes. So this is outright confiscation as long as the authorities can claim some connection with the drug traffic. And of course, I understand that all the money we carry in our pocket now is so drug-tainted that a dog can sniff it out. So therefore, every citizen in the United States is vulnerable to having his property seized. What happens to his family when that occurs, I don't know. So at the same time that we have the sort of case that you're talking about, where a justice is confused as an opponent of mercy and so forth, we have coming across the shadows, across the land, the beginning of what looks to be what de Tocqueville warned us about. He yes. said this could be, the United States could be the greatest tyranny the world has ever seen if it ceases to be a good country. Yes, uh, it used to be when I was young that uh, banks laundered their money regularly. They don't anymore. Maybe we'll have to take our money from the bank, rush home and launder it <laughs> to get rid of any drug uh, taint. What is it, the St. Francis Hotel that used to wash all the silver, remember? Yes, I'd forgotten that. Everything was spotless. Spotless. Yes. Yes. Well, Douglas, you have really more experience here than either of us. Well, as I was uh, listening to Otto, the thought suddenly occurred to me that these 52 or so classifications of uh, new federal crimes probably apply to 52 classifications of uh, uh, whatever can be done to federal employees. There's been a move in my lifetime to uh, make serious crimes out of assaulting postal employees, uh, assaulting any federal employee. Uh, if you sass the IRS, you're in deep trouble. That's right. If you make any threat, <coughs> against any federal employee, it's yes. a federal crime. Right. Now before, uh, threats were threats, yes. and they were not considered serious unless an attempt was made to carry them out. Now the threat in and of itself becomes a serious federal crime. Well, it's a felony to uh, falsify and exaggerate, in other words, your assets when applying for a loan to a bank that's a member of the FDIC. Mm -hmm. a felony. Well, I think that the frustration level, particularly among law enforcement people, is beginning to bubble to the surface. We've seen uh, recently the videotapings by people of uh, law enforcement people uh, in a fit of frustration take out their anger on uh, suspects that they've already arrested because they're getting scared. They're scared for themselves, they're scared for their own families, and they see the judicial 
judiciary as being totally out of control. It's completely inconsistent. Nothing can be counted on. Uh, the officers go through a ritual of appearing in court. Uh, they are denigrated by prosecuting attorneys, made to look ridiculous in the, uh, the public uh, where they have to serve, and uh, uh, it's contributing to the overall breakdown. I heard a man uh, well-placed in law enforcement say that he had lost all faith in the judicial system. This happened in Germany during the Weimar Republic. Yes. Several things. First, the role of psychiatry became equivalent to the role of the magistrate in the Weimar Republic. They didn't call it punishment, they called it treatment of the criminal. And the judge had to receive a psychiatric report before he could announce his sentence. The other thing is that with the rise of the Nazi party and the Communist Party, you had what amounted to personal armies or private armies who would flock into the court and intimidate the court. So you had a division between the political opinion of justice and the <clears throat> statutory opinion of justice. And between the two, there was no telling what would happen in a court <clears throat> when Hitler was put on trial, 1924-25, somewhere around there. He was, an, he was allowed to make speeches, political speeches. And they sent him to, they didn't send him to a prison, they sent him to a castle where he was practically a baron with all his colleagues, his secretaries, dictated Mein Kampf and everything else. So <clears throat> the other half of it <clears throat> is that there was a tremendous increase in the type of crime. Sadistic crimes became more popular, if you could use the term, just as the movies of that time became sadistic and under the Weimar Republic. And the rise of crime, as far as I can gather, is always connected to the decline of authority. It is not connected to any rise or increase in the degeneracy of the people, because the people, <laughs> to use a Calvinist phrase, are always bad. The only thing that keeps them from enacting their desires is a strong law. When the law weakens, crime increases. We've had just the same percentage of black people in the United States in 1935, 1940, as we have today, 12%. They did not have the same per capita quota of crimes until the courts and the police became afraid to apply the law. Well, I think the law is weakened by virtue of the fact that the people don't know what the law is anymore. There's over 3,000 laws passed in California multiplied by the number of states every year. The people don't know when they're breaking the law anymore. Therefore, they're almost uh, uh, going on faith on a day-to-day -day basis hoping that nobody puts the taps them on the shoulder. And when you don't know what the law is, you can't follow it. Well, that may be true in a technical sense. <clears throat> we don't know what the IRS may 
consider a violation of the law in many instances, or I don't think the average person realizes that if he inflates his assets on a bank loan that he's committing a serious crime. Generally speaking, the uh, increase in law hasn't changed the Ten Commandments, that you shouldn't steal, murder, and so forth and so on. Uh, I think really the people are breaking the law because they know it's a crap game and that their chances of getting away with it are fairly good. Then the number of laws passed by legislative bodies is small compared to bureaucratic law. In fact, for every volume of laws passed by a legislative body, there is a roomful passed by regulatory agencies. Which is not published. Yes. They're not posted or listed anywhere. They're put in the federal register. Or state. Or uh, state. And I'll never forget, in researching a book on the oil industry, the whole oil industry was indicted and brought to trial. And whole banks of attorneys were hired at the cost of millions of dollars. And men were convicted and fined for the violation of a regulation and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court before the judge, one of the magistrates, wanted to see the regulation and it was discovered that it had never even been listed. It was in Mr. President Roosevelt's desk drawer. They went through a whole series of trials over the violation of a law that did not exist. Well, I'd like to read something now from the September 16, 1991 Insight magazine. I think this is very revealing of what's happening, and I get stories of this sort from people. But here it is in print. An article by Carolyn Lockheed, Big Apple, New York City, takes bite from its own future. Uh, New York is on the verge of bankruptcy again, and this is what they're doing. I quote, At about 9 o'clock one morning last March, Steve DiCarlo, manager of Dan's Supreme Supermarkets of New York City, watched some 20 armed sheriff's deputies enter his store on Hillside Avenue in Queens. The deputies wore bulletproof vests with sheriff written across their backs and on their baseball caps. Carrying guns and radios, they blocked all store exits and stationed themselves at the cash registers. They cordoned off the shopping cart corral in front of the store with yellow police tape and barred entry by customers, although they allowed shoppers to leave. They demanded $16,900 immediately in cash. When DiCarlo told them he did not have access to such sum, he said they threat, uh, threatened to force open the shop, uh, store safe and remove money from the registers. The store ultimately handed over the cash. Deputies sealed it in plastic bags and left. The grounds litter violations, unquote. Now, 
to give you a little more of the kind of thing they are doing. They are, uh, while the infrastructure of the city is collapsing, they are going after uh, shopkeepers. If they find paper that a passerby on the street dropped, a gum wrapper, or any other piece of paper. I quote again, Benny Salage, who worked with a revitalization project in the Bronx, said agents from the Parking Violations Bureau came to his neighborhood, uh, come to his neighborhood at least four or five times a day. He testified that one sanitation agent followed a piece of paper from store to store and gave three stores tickets for the same piece of paper. It took him half an hour to wait for the piece of paper to move from store to store, but he waited. What a shame there was nobody there to arrest him for not picking it up. Yes. But at any rate, all this was put into uh, the uh, spring budget mes message by Mayor Dinkins. And it was uh, designed to raise more money. Meanwhile, they're cutting back on sanitation services, street cleaning, a variety of things. And the infrastructure of the city is collapsing steadily. I can recall the only city that I know that has potholes in the sidewalks as well as the street. Well, here's another thing that the writer says, and I quote, The city spends freely on heavily bureaucratized social programs, even as it neglects vital infrastructure star maintains. Politicians get little credit for what he calls thing programs, the roads, bridges, water lines, and sewers upon which life in the city depends and which are now in a state of near collapse. It is far more rewarding, he says, for a city politician to promise cheaper apartment rents for everybody, unquote. And the author refers to New York as the People's Republic of New York and goes on to document what is happening, to, to cite one thing. I quote again. Uh, this is what uh, a Manhattan resident who lives in a better-than-average neighborhood uh, has to say, the area has also become a toilet. My neighbors and I get up in the morning to see people defecating on the sidewalk in the median strips, urine trails down the sides of buildings in tributaries. Uh, Nobler writes, unquote. And so on and on. Isn't it a shame that we can't expel us from the Union? The trouble is that one city after another is coming to the same condition from New York to Berkeley 
Chicago has done better than uh, most cities. Although that does not mean the situation is good in Chicago. Well, I understand the mafia has been protecting the city. (laughs) I really mean that. Yes, I'm serious about it, too. Well, San Francisco is another case in point. You go to a civic center in San Francisco, and it's a public toilet. I went to a a, a computer show at the Moscone Center and uh, about two, three years ago, and that's the last time I'll ever go. I mean, the, the stench and the filth was worse than anything I've seen in a long, long time. Derelicts in doorways, uh, people that are obviously mentally disturbed and uh, lying in their own filth and uh, they just don't think there's anything wrong with it that uh, they should have the freedom to uh, exist that way and that they shouldn't be uh, dealt with. This is a regression to conditions a thousand years earlier. Before there were sewer systems, before there were police, when everyone had to go armed that's the reason that men carried swords, had armed guards. And even earlier in Baghdad, the wealthy employed whippers who went ahead of them with whips and who whipped people out of the way. This is the decline of a civilization. And it's very interesting that Toynbee, I think, said this years ago, he said the, decline, the center declines while the peripheries remain dynamic. The American street culture is moving around the world and the rock and roll and uh, our movies and so forth and so on, but the core is festering. Our capital is an embarrassment. I've been panhandled in front of the White House and I can recall this is not a new thing. I remember when men were sleeping on the sidewalk in Pennsylvania Avenue in the 30s. But they didn't do the things that are being done now. No. Now there is danger out there in the street. I think we re- I remember talking about this earlier, that I did a story for the Christian Herald about the Bowery, and young black men were going down and killing the winos and the drunks on the Bowery and stealing their clothes, their shoes, and everything else. And the Christian Herald wouldn't print the article because they didn't want to admit in print the circumstances. And we have the same strange prudery going on in our media today. The newspapers, the television, the radio will not discuss the facts of everyday American life anymore. Well, they're prevailed upon by... Uh, chambers of commerce and mayors uh, not to uh, print the dark side. In San Francisco, we heard uh, probably a year or two ago that cars were being stopped uh, by gangs in San Francisco. The occupants of the car were dragged out in the street. Their lives were threatened if uh, uh, they didn't give up their wallet and all of their jewelry and uh, half the time the gangs drove off with the car to a chop shop to uh, break it down for whatever value they could get out of it. More recently in Detroit, uh, people are being uh, put upon at stoplights where a car stops at a stoplight and uh, the uh, 
somebody comes up and puts a gun in your face and uh, they'll kill you just so you can't identify them and uh, they'll drive off with the car and all of your valuables so it's it's obviously out of control law enforcement can't handle that kind of thing and before long we'll see curfews and martial law in major cities in this country perhaps before that you'll see what uh, is prevalent in Latin America and has been for a long time the police reach the point where they realize that the courts are so corrupt that there's no sense bringing the criminal in court. So he's shot on the way to the police station, and they say he tried to escape. Ley de fuego, uh, the law of the flight. Uh, <clears throat> that's summary justice. And, of course, the, some of the other aspects of this has been what the liberals here call the death squads, where vigilante groups go out and kill agitators and criminals and so forth. They kill children, the street children, who commit all kinds of atrocities, and that's the reason that they're killed. They're not killed because they're kids, and they're not killed because they're homeless. They're killed because they might burn somebody's house down in, in return for a carton of cigarettes. And you have... Uh, a decline, distortion of organized law, and you have then street law, lynch law, vengeance law, and so forth. Our movies promote this. So does television. I mean, here you see the police breaking down a door, throwing somebody against a wall, beating him, and this is the forces of law and order. Well, it's glamorized. It's exciting. They make it appear as though it's an adventure rather than a profession. And too many people are being drawn into the legal profession on the basis of television programs, how uh, rewarding it is monetarily, the status that attorneys have in society, and uh, they're, they're relatively free from the constraints that other people are under. And too many people are being drawn into the legal profession on the basis of television programs, how uh, rewarding it is monetarily, the status that attorneys have in society, and uh, they're, they're relatively free from the constraints that other people are under. Well, the subject of uh, law and disorder is becoming a very, very urgent one. For example, today's San Francisco Chronicle has a story, first in a series, which begins, and I quote, San Francisco's strong and diversified economy has long been the envy of cities across the nation that one by one fell victim to urban blight and decay. But today, numerous economists and urban experts are warning that the city's relative affluence has masked growing threats to its own prosperity. Like a Rolls-Royce exposed too long to the elements, San Francisco's rich economy is rusting at the joints and in need of immediate maintenance. The implications are ominous. Without steps to revive the economy, San Francisco could face a bleak future of stagnation, job flight, higher taxes, and dwindling social services. 
Uh, the question isn't whether San Francisco will compete with Los Angeles, said Dinah Gruen, a San Francisco urban sociologist, but whether it will be a total wipeout like New Orleans, a city whose bon vivant ways rely a crumbling economy and infrastructure, unquote. It is losing population, businesses are beginning to leave, because the taxes are too heavy, and as a result, the middle classes are leaving, and it's becoming a city of a few rich and a great many, a growing number of poor people. Well, that's a microcosm of the macrocosm. Yes. Because we could say the same thing about the country as a whole. Yes. Well, it means that not only the country, but the world, because the world has the same problems. And the cities of Europe are crumbling because of the Islamic populations that are overwhelming them. Well, I remember 20 years ago, noticing that most of the waiters around London were Greek or Spanish, very few English. So this is not a recent thing. It's simply that like smog is now discernible on the surface everywhere you look. Our cities are in bad shape, but so is our government, so is our capital. Disorder also is... Uh, a mental and moral situation. It's not entirely a physical thing. We're disorderly intellectually in the United States. There's there's an increasing no amount of name-calling and bad language. Uh, it's not possible now to go to a movie without hearing things that are absolutely, unutterably unspeakable. The yeah. worst, the worst of language, exposed to every, radiating to everybody. And of course, I remember years ago, 20 odd years ago, sitting in a movie in Caracas where we had an American film, Burt Lancaster and somebody else. At the end of the film, everyone in it was so degraded that the audience began to hiss. And I couldn't help but feel ashamed. And I thought, what are these people doing to this country? So that's disorder. Yes. Let me say, by the way, that the Greeks are the ones who are blocking the further entrance of Turks into Europe. And Greece deserves credit for having the courage to say they are not our kind. They are alien to us culturally and religiously. Well, I was just uh, listening to Otto there. I thought that uh, one of the, it seems like one of the uh, inevitable results of being successful is you wind up with a society that won't take certain jobs when you're talking about the waiter jobs. One of the reasons that the uh, U.S. government, or at least officials in the U.S. government that are in favor of open uh, immigration to the United States is that uh, there are a lot of jobs in uh, a lot of industries that Americans won't take. Therefore, they have to allow this immigration so that uh, people will start at these entry-level jobs. 
Well, we have a curious contradiction here. 25% of the class of 1975, let us say, are no longer alive on earth because they were aborted in their mother's wombs. We have aborted over 25 million people. Those 25 million would have had 25 million more by this time, and there would have been plenty, plenty of activity and people in this country instead of which we're bringing in the relatives of immigrants. And it's the relatives of the immigrants that are killing us in terms of population demographics. How, who is going to check on how many cousins an Asian family has? Apparently they have every one of them a thousand. And uh, I don't believe that Americans will not take these jobs because I know that young people today will take anything in order to get by. They have to. They have to. I think these rationales keep coming up that it's somehow or another the people of the United States have made the officials take certain actions, but that's not the case. The people of the United States have no control over the officials. That's part of our problem. Well, the officials are very good at coming up with these kinds of explanations that put the the blame back on uh, the citizens of this country. Yes, indeed. Tell me, you have lots of friends still in the police force. What do they say? What's their what's their attitude? How do they feel? Well, uh, you know, the police officers go through a lot of different stages. Uh, they're very enthusiastic when they first start. Uh, there's a lot to learn, uh, a lot of procedures that they have to learn. Uh, they're almost overtrained by the time they get into the field. And I know we've spoken of this before, that instead of using the uh, field training and uh, having a rookie cop go out with an experienced officer for at least four or five years before he's allowed to go out on his own so that he can watch how an experienced officer relates to the public, how he deals with various situations, and the older officer can watch the younger man to see that he doesn't overreact and doesn't lose control of himself. And uh, that's not happening. There's such a tremendous turnover uh, for instance, in this county that we live in, there's something like a 50% turnover every year or two among the line officers. These are the fellows that go out on the street and make the calls day to day. Uh, of course, there's not as much turnover in the administrative uh, people. Isn't Don't they get paid enough? Uh, well, a lot of them don't come up in an area like this for uh, for pay necessarily. Many of them come up for the... Uh, to get away from the pressures of law enforcement jobs that they've had in city areas where they're running anywhere from six, eight, ten violent crimes deep. In other words, that's one officer, one radio car has six uh, violent crimes in progress that he's supposed to respond to. Now, I used to have a business in the city of Oakland. This is some years ago. This is uh, almost 20 years ago. And 20 years ago, if you listened on a police radio scanner, there would be something like 12 armed robberies by 10 o'clock in the morning. And the officers simply couldn't get to them all. 
if the description from the dispatcher was that somebody was being assaulted, then they would try to get to that one first. But if somebody was simply looting a store, that was further down the priority list. Property was further down the, the, uh, the list. So a lot of these officers, they have burnout, and that's the reason for a lot of the turnover. They just, that pressure, that, that uh, unending, incessant pressure uh, is just too much for any human being to take. I recall in the 30s that the New York police force was considered one of the best in the country. It was a good job. Uh, they were mostly blue-collar men. I don't think they got a great deal of uh, the sort of training they get today, not too much on the paperwork and classroom instruction. It was almost all hands-on apprenticeship under older men. And they were very smart, uh, very intelligent. Uh, they did an awful lot of law enforcing without dragging anybody in. And, of course, they still had beat patrolmen. They had 20,000. But my impression is, and I don't know if it's true or not, is that police work no longer pays proportionately what it paid then. It paid a great deal better then than you could get on a blue-collar job or e even a skilled trade job. Today, I don't think that's true. If we were to pay policemen today in a proportional way, they would be getting at least 100000 a year. Well, right now they start somewhere around $10, $10 an hour. Now oh, that's ridiculous. $10 an hour. And, and uh, most of them, in fact, virtually everyone that I know, uh, his wife is working full time. Well, then he's, he's, he's taking a job as a sacrifice. It amounts to a sacrifice. They come up here because living conditions are better and there isn't the same uh, degree of violence but they find that they cannot support themselves and their wives have to work and there's still pressure on the job because they're shorthanded. Of course they have women policemen now yes. which is, uh, you know, I, I fear for them Every so often they lose their guns and their lives. The introdu introduction of women into the workforce has had the overall effect of reducing the wages for every worker. Well, uh, FBI statistics uh, state that 70% of the 150 to 200 police officers that are killed every year are shot with their own gun and most of them simply are physically not large enough to keep that from happening. We are sending people who are ill-equipped by size. I don't care how much training you give them. They can be kung fu experts, but when you come up against some guy who's enraged or drug-crazed or alcohol-crazed and weighs 250 uh, pounds, uh, he's just going to pick you up and throw you through a plate glass window. And uh, since they eliminated the uh, minimum size requirements so that they could allow Asians and women into law enforcement, uh, the number of people who've been getting killed on the job has risen steadily, and yet nobody makes the connection. Isn't it strange? Uh, they used to do most of the... They, uh, they had third degree... They had a third degree. They put real pressure on their prisoner, but not as much pressure as people may uh, believe. 
The criminals that I recall when I was covering crime were anxious to confess, strange as that sounds. There is a need to confess if you have done something wrong, and it's written in your heart, like the knowledge of God. And most of the time the confessions were not forced, and then some sort of a deal was made if they would implicate others and so forth. But as I recall, the police in those days, they all had an awful lot of friends in the community, contacts in the community. They had bars where they could get free drinks and where they knew the bartender or the proprietor and they knew some of the habitués of the bar, they knew the cleaning shop, the hotel owner, and this one and that one. And they could come, the community helped them solve crimes. The community wouldn't tell them who the members of the Mafia were, but they would let them know that it was a Mafia deal. Now my impression is that the police are as removed from the citizenry as the, uh, as the police of Spain used to be, who had to live separate from everybody else. Without these community contacts and cooperation, the police are really up against the black wall. I don't know if that's true or not. Well, you know, the modern-day term for that is networking. Yeah, networking is not going on. Nowadays, you've got a network of stoolies where uh, someone is picked up for some minor crime, and because it's either a misdemeanor or not too serious a crime, they will make a deal. If he will furnish information, they'll let him, and let him go. But he has to continue his gang activities in order to be of use for them. And this is that something like the Okrana of the Tsarist Russia, where it had both Stalin and Vyshinsky worked for the police at the same time they worked for the revolution. And the police couldn't put them away for too long because then they would no longer be revolutionary stoolies. And they continued with the revolution in order to keep out of the hands of the police in order to keep their deal going. So we have here a police underworld connection that becomes permanent. Well, uh, one of the problems nowadays is that uh, these uh, stoolies or stool pigeons, if you want to refer to them as that. Informants. They're, they're informants. They're frequently burned by the court. The judges used to understand this means of gathering information in order to achieve justice. Yes. But nowadays they are so bound by procedural technicalities that frequently informants are placed in a position where they must be revealed. They are forced to be, their identity is revealed by either by public prosecutors or the judge will demand it. Would you say that this is a result of our university educational professional class where the rules become more important, the, the technique is more important than the substance? I would say so. Yes. There is a man in a fair-sized city in this state who is in police work. He is under 40. He's a Christian Reconstructionist. He would like very much to come up here to be able to worship with us because he feels totally alone. Mm. Everyone around him is 
becoming totally cynical after so many years in the forest. They feel that the courts are worthless. What they say about the judges is hardly repeatable uh, on tape or off tape. And yet, when he checked out the situation here and he thought very, very seriously of coming here because it's getting to him. He found he couldn't afford to make the move unless his wife went to work. And with uh, some very small children, he, he cannot consider that possibility. So this is the trap that the police are in. And they feel very, very isolated and embittered. And especially, of course, with the kind of thing the taping of the Rodney King arrest uh, did to the police. Nothing was said about the fact that this man was known to be a criminal, that he was speeding at 100 miles an hour, that there was reason to believe he might be armed and dangerous, and he was refusing to submit. So were they going to stand back and say, pretty please? Under such circumstances, they reacted the way you and I would react. They struck before something happened to them. Well, of course, there's also been other tapes yes. showing other atrocities of various sorts which have not been radiated all across the country on every TV station. Mm -hmm. As we know, the media is very selective. Yes. I mean, there was not too many years ago an instance of a patrolman in New Jersey, I believe, who was literally pulled to pieces by the crowd. And no outcry whatever. But mm -hmm. all bad things come to an end as well as all good things. Yes. There is no question in my mind that tolerance and once some people would even say as passive as the American people have become, there is a limit to their, to their tolerance. We are going to see an enormous explosion in this country unless the government recovers its brains. Now, I've listened this afternoon to a CNN uh, crossfire program. There was a young man, a reporter on there, who had a, a researched book. The title of the book was The Minority Party. And he said, he had researched this quite extensively, he said the Democratic Party has so tied itself in with the minorities in this country that it's losing the allegiance of the white people. And he said this is not only true of the older white middle class, which voted Republican presidents in for the last four elections, but especially and particularly of the younger white people who will not hear anything more about it and that the affirmative action program is now gone into reverse as far as the Democrats are concerned in their votes. And that includes Congress as well as the president. 
because it's a Democrat Congress that's doing this. Both the other people on the program, one was Reverend Jesse Jackson, and I'll tell you, I thought he was going to jump out of his starched collar. He, he, he went on a roll about how it had nothing to do with it, that uh, the, what about the deficit, said Jesse Jackson, what about all this overseas money? And uh, the in one of the examiners or fellow commentators went into another role saying that it was all part of the Republican racist propaganda, but we know it isn't. We know it isn't. Well, I think one of the hopeful signs today is the fact that Howard Phillips is starting a new party, the Taxpayers' Alliance, and the response he has been getting is amazingly good, that Christians in particular, disillusioned with the anti-Christian stance of both the major parties, are beginning to look to the Taxpayers' Alliance. Did you read the Wanderer article? Uh, no, I missed that. The Wanderer had an article about Howie's party, in which it said that he is picking up large elements of the moral majority and the conservative Catholics. And Christian Reconstructionists and Evangelical Protestants. He is picking up people who become disillusioned with both parties. And I think that's one of a number of very uh, dramatic signs on the horizon that indicate that law and disorder are not going to prevail, false law and its disorder. Well, the uh, term limitation thing is up before the California Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Now, the court is being asked to rule that you cannot limit congressional or legislative terms without changing the Constitution. Well, all that does is delay the day of judgment, because if the court rules in that effect, of course the Constitution of California will be changed. And if you once open it up for change, the change may be a lot more sweeping than Willie Brown expects. Yes, they're all saying that they're not in favor of, of getting into a constitutional change. They just want to selectively pick and choose what they want to go after. I think uh, the uh, uh, regarding Howie Phillips' uh, third-party effort, uh, we need to be made aware of how this is going to work from a practical standpoint. How can individual people in the Christian community uh, uh, support this effort? And uh, will it be by write-in ballots? Uh, in other words, should people be encouraged, uh, rather than going down for the two uh, party choices, uh, select the uh, taxpayers' party by the uh, write-in ballot? Well, he has over a year left to organize, and he's, uh, his organizational efforts, I understand, have proceeded more quickly than he expected. He expects to be on the ballot in every state. And he expects to have a national convention between sometime, sometime between now and next November, mm -hmm. or the November after this. Well, I think 
there are very hopeful signs on the horizon. I think we and those who are listening to us represent a change on the American scene. There was well, nothing like this 20 years ago and 30 years ago. This conversation would not have been held only no. a few years ago. Mm -hmm. We never really got down to these sort of basics earlier. Well, people always think that things are, are uh, uh, can't get any worse. No, they can always get worse. They can always get better, too. <laughs> yes, and people have not tied in the existing laws to disorder. And this, I believe, they are beginning to do. So that I think we have brought together a key factor in our current crisis, that law is the basis of our disorder, and we need to change the nature of our laws. We need to go back again to what was common in every classroom and in every court, the Ten Commandments. They used to be on the walls. That's what I you know, said earlier about whether people know they're breaking the law or not. There's also going to have to be something done about these legislative mills that we have created. Yes. We cannot continue as a nation to have nothing but these macaroni laws ground out every minute. Mm -hmm. uh, there should be a decent interval before a law is changed or before a law is enacted. And these people have got better things if they have... They don't have to sit around here around the clock passing laws. They can go home and go to work as their forebears did for a good part of the year. Well, we've got an enormous uh, supply and demand problem. Seventy percent of the attorneys in the world are in the United States. So when you've got that kind of a supply, they're not all good. And some of them have to find work somewhere, and some of the failed attorneys go into politics. I'm very surprised that so few of them set out to defend the people. That's an awful waste of education involved there. It's the last thing in their mind. Every attorney I've ever talked to said that uh, there, there is not justice is not their job. It's the procedural technicalities that they're involved well, with. If uh, justice is not the their job, school. we'll have to change their law. We'll have to change their job requirements. Yes. Well, our time is just about up. Thank you all for listening. I think that we all need to think very, very seriously about the essential relationship between the kind of laws we now have and the disorder we are experiencing. I began by saying that much of our trouble today is caused by bad laws rather than by bad men, and that bad laws can affect more people than a bad man can. So we need to get back to God's law and to start changing people. Thank you all, and good night. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation.
Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ Rules. Dot com.